very dramatic music coming up here. I feel like something more epic should happen than me standing here talking right now. But anyway, so, so welcome, everybody. It's great to have you guys here. And it's, uh, it's great to, uh, to see you. And welcome, everybody, watching online and at Montrose. Uh, thanks for being here as well. Hey, before I go on, I want to do something. So Bob and Julie Combs are here. I want you guys to stand up. Bob and Julie, stand up. Stand up. Bob, stand up. <laughs> right? So, so Bob and Julie are the reason we're all here. So uh, the Bath Campus is the first campus of Grace Church. The Bath Campus is, was Bob's vision, Bob's idea. And Bob and Julie would have instilled kind of the spiritual DNA of, of Grace Church that you would be a part of and hear all the time. And so honored that they're here with us. And you need to thank them and honor them for uh, their years of sacrifice and work here. Love it. So if you were, if you were here a couple weeks ago, the hyperactive Yoda I was talking about, that guy right there, right? He's, uh, he's what are you, 82 now? but you're still good looking. He's still good looking, so it's fun to have you guys here. Well, welcome, and uh, everybody online, welcome, and everybody at Montrose, welcome. And we're starting a, a series this weekend called Sacrilege, and we're talking about when religion gets in the way of God, and uh, looking at that and trying to understand that a little bit. So we've been talking about Jesus here for um, a few weeks, and as Jesus is kind of coming forward, and defining who he is and what he's like and what he's here for, uh, one, of the, one of the things that you'll, you'll kind of see is like a pattern that will pick up in his life a little bit. It's kind of a distinction. Is you'll see that there's this distinct way that Jesus interacts with sinners. So a sinner in the Bible is someone who lives life void of God. So they may not know about God, they may not care about God, they may be rebelling against God, but they're living life void of God. They, the God is not defining them and not directing them, and, and for whatever reason, they don't want that to happen. So when you watch Jesus' life, you'll see that he has a, a, a unique reaction to sinners, and it's kind of one side of the spectrum. The other thing that you'll see, kind of this pattern, is you'll see that Jesus has this unique reaction to religious people who are supposed to have a heart for sinners, but don't. So in the, in, in throughout, like when you see Jesus working, he would have been uh, pushing against people, usually they're called Pharisees or Sadducees or teachers of the law, and these were people who had a knowledge of God, they would have understood what we would call the Old Testament, so they had this knowledge of God, and they knew about God's heart and God's passion for sinners, but they took that religion and they took that truth and they distorted it or perverted it or kept it for themselves, right? And what you'll see a lot of times is you'll see Jesus, he'll have a real heart for sinners. You'll see a lot of compassion and mercy and grace and understanding for sinners. And the Bible says he came for them. He came to seek and to save those who were lost. And so that's why Jesus would, he'd often hang out with prostitutes and tax collectors and disreputable sinners. It's not because he, he was participating, it's because he wanted them to know about his love and his forgiveness. And then you'll see him kind of knock heads with those religious folks who were supposed to have a heart for sinners but didn't. 
and they were confusing and putting barriers up towards sinners. And sometimes you'll see Jesus kind of, he's almost like harsh or really, really blunt or really, really direct with these guys and then like soft and compassionate toward these guys, right? And that distinction is a big deal. It's a big deal to understand in the Bible, especially if you're a Christ follower, right? So if you're a Christ follower, if you grew up religious, I grew up religious, what I was often taught or what was modeled to me was the attitude Jesus had toward the religious folks was the attitude I was taught to have toward the sinner. So the sinner is who you yelled at, the sinner is who you were blunt with, the sinner is who you were disappointed in and frustrated with. And, and the attitude Jesus had toward these religious folks who were hoarding truth and grace is the attitude I was taught to have toward sinners who were the objects of Jesus' compassion, truth, and grace, right? When the religious folks were not serving or following Jesus, we were kind of taught, you kind of give them a wink and a nod and a pass, right? Like everybody knows what so-and-so is actually like, but don't say anything about it. And so it was confusing to me. It was confusing to me because it was a distortion of the heart and the mind of Jesus. And, and it, it was backwards in my head. I really struggled with it because I would be really, really like firm and angry and upset with sinners being sinners and really, really like everybody over here that I kind of know and it's kind of my buddy, we go to church together, we kind of give them a pass and we all kind of wink and nod at each other, right? So that's, that's kind of a timeless thing. It's a timeless thing. When Jesus shows up and he steps in the middle of all that, he starts to bring some real distinction about that. And, he, and he, he kind of brings it to light. He brings it to light, right? And a lot of times when he did that, it would have been considered by these religious folks sacrilegious. Like you, you, are, you are doing this all wrong. Everybody knows that if you're religious, you don't do this. And Jesus wasn't just like trying to blow up the system. Jesus was like, no, the passion of my heart are these people. And the systems that you've created are actually barriers for them to interact with my heart. And that's why I would press against it. Because I want those barriers removed so that they can have clear and accessible access to my heart and find the forgiveness and the love that they need to find, okay? So in all of that, uh, you see Jesus do some stuff. And you see him do several things that are kind of a little bit weird and there's like a bit of a backstory to it. But that's what he's doing. He's, he's like making this divining line. He's saying, this is how I'm gonna interact with them. And if you're my follower, you follow what I do. I want you to interact with them the same way. Okay, now I wanna take you to one of these times that he was sacrilegious. So if you got a Bible, we're gonna hang out in John chapter two. John chapter two. And if you don't have a Bible, this is on the app. If you just want to open the app or look something up on your phone, John chapter 2. And this is a story. If you grew up in Sunday school or something, you might have heard a story before. But this is one of these accounts where Jesus is being sacrilegious, according to those guys. But he's doing that because he has a passion for the sinner, for the people who need his forgiveness, love, and compassion. So John chapter 2, start with verse 13. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover celebration, so Jesus went to Jerusalem. In the temple area, he saw merchants selling cattle, sheep, and doves for sacrifice. 
He also saw dealers at tables exchanging foreign money. Jesus made a whip from ropes and chased them all out of the temple. He drove them out and he drove out the sheep and the cattle and he, sta he scattered the money changers' coins all over the floor and turned over their tables. Then going to the people who sold doves, he told them, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Then his disciples remembered this prophecy from scripture, passion for God's house will consume me. But the Jewish leaders, the religious folks, demanded, they said, what are you doing? If God gave you authority to do this, show us a miraculous sign to prove it. All right, Jesus replied, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. What they explained, it, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you can rebuild it in three days. But when Jesus said this temple, he meant his own body. After he was raised from the dead, the disciples remember that he had said this and they believed both the scripture and what Jesus had said, okay? So Jesus walks into the temple courts and he flips over the table. If you thought about the temple courts, so think about coming into a huge outdoor lobby. Those were the temple courts, and kind of at the end of that lobby was the temple, right? And he walks into these temple courts, he sees them selling things, he sees them exchanging money, he makes a whip. For some reason, I've always found that hilarious. Like, he didn't like find one, he like, I'm gonna make a whip, right? So he makes a whip, he flips over the table, scatters a coin, lets the animals free, and then rebukes these religious leaders why did he do that? Okay, why did he do that? So to get our head around this a little bit and to understand what Jesus was doing, we gotta spend a minute and talk about the temple. Okay, what was the temple and why did this matter? Because the temple was not just a church building, right? So it's not like, it's not like he walked into Grace Church and flipped over the coffee kind of a thing, right? So it wasn't just a temple, uh, it wasn't just church building, it was something unique. And we first hear about the temple in the first part of the Bible, what we call the Old Testament, okay? So the first part of the Bible, there was a time when a guy named Moses, if you're familiar with that story, led the nation of Israel out of Egypt. Or if you've ever watched the Prince of Egypt movie, that, that happened, okay? So he leads the people out of Egypt and they wander in the wilderness. And when they were in the wilderness, they wanted to connect with God and God wanted to connect with them. So God said, this is what I want you to do. I want you to make a tent, called it the tabernacle, and I want you to make that tent and I will come and I will dwell in that tent. I will show up on the planet in that tent and you can interact with me and I can interact with you, right? Time passes. Israel becomes a nation, not just a people. And there was a famous king, his name was David. And David got a passion to build God a temple. David started organizing it. God said, thank you, David, and you're not gonna be able to finish it. I want your son Solomon to finish the temple, okay? So Solomon goes out to the people and says, we're gonna build God a temple. We're not just gonna use this tent anymore. The people collected their gold, they collected their silver, they got the finest woods. They wanted to build God the most spectacular building that they could build him so that when you saw that building, it reflected the glory and the wonder and the power of God. And so they brought their very, very best stuff 
and it was used to build the temple. And that te- when you saw it, you were to think of God and think of his heart and think of his presence, okay? Now, in 2 Chronicles chapter seven, they're gonna have the building dedication. So in 2 Chronicles chapter seven, the Bible says this, when Solomon finished praying, fire flashed down from heaven and burned up the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. The priest could not enter the temple of the Lord because the glorious presence of the Lord filled it. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glorious presence of the Lord filling the temple, they fell face down on the ground and they worshiped and praised the Lord saying, he is good and his faithful love endures forever. So they get all their best stuff. They build this glorious building. It's beautiful, it's fancy, gold inlaid. All the Bible describes it. All this amazing stuff because they wanted to reflect the glory of God. They have a building dedication. The people are there watching happen. There's a flash and the presence of God fills the temple. So just like in the tabernacle, God looked and said, I will come down and I will meet you. And I'll, meet, I'll be in the temple and you can come to the temple and you can interact with me and I can interact with you. This glorious building, as fancy as they could possibly make it because they wanted it to reflect the glory of God, this miracle, kabam, the presence of God shows up in this glorious temple and the instinctual reaction of the people, the initial reaction of the people, the, the, the reaction of the people before any of the religious systems were put in place, when they saw the building and they saw the miracle, their instinctual reaction was, when I look at that, I remember and I believe that God is good and his faithful love endures forever. I don't look and think, man, we really build us a good building. And, when I, and I don't see a God that I'm afraid of. I don't see a God that I'm intimidated by. I don't see a system that keeps me far from God. Ooh, it's really big and it's really pretty and you gotta do certain things with animals to get there. Their initial and instinctual reaction was, God is good and his faithfulness endures forever. God showed up and he wants to know me, and he wants to interact with me, and he came and he's living in that thing. He, he like accepted like our measly little building because he loves me and he's so faithful and he's so good that he contains himself, so to say. His presence is in that temple, right? So that temple was not something that they were awestruck by, That temple was not something where they walked up to and said, man, I don't belong here. That temple was something that they looked at and said, that is a place of a good and faithful and loving God. And he wants to be with me, right? Now, over the years, folks got a hold of that. And they took that that basic story that God is good and that he loves you and they started to twist it and change it and convert it. And they started to take the mechanisms that God gave the people for their sins to be forgiven 
and they started to manipulate and change and distort those mechanisms. So God looked at the folks, he's like, guys, listen, when you come to the temple, I want you to bring an animal and I want you to sacrifice it, usually a lamb, sometimes cattle, or a dove if you were poor. And I want you to do that because I want you to understand that it takes a life to purchase a life. That's how egregious your sin is to a perfect God. And so I I want you to understand that. Later on, when Jesus died on the cross, that's why he's called the Lamb of God. It took his blood. It takes a life to purchase our lives for us spiritually, right? So those things were happening. The sacrifices were happening. Uh, Time passes. Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up, he looks, he walks into the temple court, the lobby of the temple, Temple was a little bit different, little changed by now. Same principle. God's presence was there, and this was a place where you would meet God. He walks into those temple courts, and what he sees appalls him. And he's so upset about it that, that he makes a whip and starts to flip over tables and set the cattle loose, right? Now, What was he doing? What was he doing and why did he do that, okay? What Jesus saw was this. He saw that those who were supposed to usher the spiritually needy into the presence of the Father were instead creating barriers to his Father's heart. And it made him righteously angry. What Jesus was not doing, Jesus was not saying that you cannot sell anything in the church's lobby. I was told that growing up. Like, you you can't exchange money in the church. You couldn't give your kids 10 bucks for lunch. It was only four bucks back then, but you couldn't do that because you didn't exchange money in the church's lobby, right? Somehow you could hand your offering in, but you couldn't do anything else in there. That's not, that was not his point. Jesus did not lose his cool. He did not lose his temper, right? So some of us, I've always struggled with my temper. Like I have to work really, really hard to control my temper. And so when I, when I blow that and lose it, I don't look at Heidi and say, well, you know, Jesus did, so, right? So he did not lose his temper, ready? He did not see an injustice and act on it. So Jesus did not look and say, well, those people are being treated poorly that gives me an excuse to act violently. That's not what he was doing. What Jesus was doing was he was looking and saying, wait a minute, you guys, you religious guys, this place is where the presence of God is. And God said to people to come to this place and have your sins forgiven. And you guys have taken that and you have abused people who are genuinely trying to be right with God, and you've created barriers to my Father's heart. The reason that there were animals and money exchangers there in the temple was this, that, that God, uh, God said you gotta bring these sacrifices, and so probably out of good motives, somewhere along the way, Somebody looked and said, there's people coming from all over. They're, they're walking sometimes hundreds of miles to come to the temple. You know what we could do to help them? We could have their sacrifices here. 
right? I don't know if you've ever taken a sheep on like a 100-mile walk, but it's not easy, right? So you ever try to catch a dove? They're slippery. Like, so they're like, you know what? We could help people. There's all kinds of currencies in the ancient world, so you have to exchange money like we do. Like you go to Mexico or Canada, you exchange money, right? And like we could help. So what probably started off as a service had become a profit center, the, the, the sheep that started off as like, you know, it would help everybody if it was here, now they're just making money off of it. Like I can buy a sheep for like 99 cents outside the temple courts, inside it's like 50 bucks, right? It's like going into the stadium to watch the Browns. This is inflated. The, the exchange rates, people had taken people's genuine desire to be connected with God. They had distorted it perverted it, and were abusing it. And it was creating barriers between people who wanted to be made right with God and the heart of the Father. And the disciples remembered that that's what Jesus said, that Jesus said, or the prophecy said, passion for my Father's house will consume me. Why? Because my Father's house at the time is where you met my Father. It was where you interacted with God and where God interacted with you. And... and you have turned it into this. You have put barriers between, between someone genuinely seeking God and the God that they need to seek and who is searching for them, right? So he made a whip and he flipped some tables and he cleared up the matter, right, from everybody. Now, how does this show up for us, right? Because we don't bring animals to church. Like, we just, like, thank goodness that, that's changed, right? Somebody asked me one time if they could bring their dog to church. I said, no, no, we're, we're, we just started letting junior hires in. So I'm like, no, no dogs, right? So, like, we, we don't bring animals to church. We don't do blood sacrifices. We don't, because things changed after Jesus rose again from the dead, right? So what, what's the point of this for us? Why would God want this account recorded in the scriptures for us to understand Jesus, Right? The reason that this is recorded is because of this tension that Jesus has compassion and forgiveness and grace for the sinner and we have often been taught that the way he responded to the religious is the way that we are to respond to the sinner. And Jesus would stand in the middle of that and say, guys, I want you to see this and I want you to understand this that when the sinner is looking for the heart of God, my people should usher them, help them, remove the barriers for them to know and to act on God's calling on their life, right? Now, how's this play out? It plays out in two ways, okay? The first way it plays out is this way. It plays out in the church collectively, in the church collectively. So this is what the Bible says. The Bible says, when you accept Jesus as your savior, uh, a few things happen instantly, Okay? So instantly, your sins are forgiven and you're reborn spiritually. So your sins are forgiven, your heart is washed whiter than snow, uh, your sin is thrown as far as the east is from the west, it's buried at the bottom of the sea. Those are all ways that the Bible describes how we are reborn in Christ. That happens instantly. Another thing that happens instantly is that the Holy Spirit of God, the Bible uses this word, indwells us or lives within us. So maybe you've heard somebody say like, Jesus or God lives in my heart. 
What we mean is this, is that God sets up residence in my soul, right? So God is with me, or the Spirit of God is with me all the time. A third thing that happens instantly when we accept Jesus as our Savior is we become a part of what the Bible calls the body of Christ and what we usually refer to as the church. So the spiritual entity of the church, I'm engrafted into that the moment that I accept Jesus as my savior. And these are all spiritual things that happen to me when I become a follower of Jesus Christ and they become things that start to define me. Now why is that important to know? Because it's important to know that the church collectively is now the representation of God. This is the way that God says it through the Apostle Paul. He says, don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God, right? So the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God lives in you. So the presence of God now lives in us. He doesn't live in a building in Jerusalem. He lives in us. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple, So after Jesus rose again from the dead and he started the church, things shifted. And the presence of God doesn't reside in a building in the Middle East. The presence of God resides in everybody who's a follower of Jesus Christ. A way to think of this is this. The presence of God moved from a place to a people. So the people of God or the church, the spiritual entity of the church, now is the physical representation of the heart and the mind and the truth of Jesus on the planet. And when sinners are looking to connect with God, they would find that place of connection through the people of God. They would turn to the church, and if they turn to the church, what they should find, what their instinctual reaction should be is that God is good and he is loving and he is faithful. Because that would be the clearest reflection of God's heart through the ones who are his temple to the people who are searching for God. So as a church, we would look then and say, wait a minute, is that the case? If we are the temple of God and the people of God who represent the heart of God, when the people of God saw that in Chronicles, they fell in worship and they said, God is good and his faithful love endures forever When people see us, why do they assume we hate them? Why would they assume that that they're not good enough? Why would they joke about if I walk in there, the church will collapse on me? Why would that happen? And when we see that as the people of God, we would look and say, wait a minute, are there tables that we've set up that block people's path to God? Is there anything about what we are doing or how we are thinking or how we are functioning collectively that make it difficult for people to come to God? 
Now, when I grew up in church, I was taught that in order to get to God, I had to clean my life up. So if, if you stopped, once you stop smoking, drinking, chewing, dating girls to do and cheering for Michigan, once you stop that, then you could get to God. Once you started coming to the church and once you started to conform to the subculture of the church and once you understood how the church were, once you jumped over those tables, then you could get to God. But you weren't really welcome in God's presence until your sin was cared for. And I was taught that. Ready? And I was lied to. That's a lie. I can't clean up my life. I can't forgive my sin. I can't live in some state of perfection that earns me grace. And that's why God showed up on the earth for me. And when I realize that I'm a sinner and I look to God for forgiveness and grace and compassion, he gives it freely and richly and the Bible says he lavishes his grace and mercy on me. But I was told to get a haircut and dress right and listen to the right music and get my act together and believe the right things and don't you even think about struggling with your sexual identity. All that's got to be in line before the heart of God is available to you. So as a church... We have to look and say, are there, are there tables that have to be flipped so the path to Jesus is clear and accessible? And one of those tables might be how we communicate the openness and the freeness and the forgiveness that Christ offers. Right? So it shows up collectively. The other way that this shows up, it's gonna show up in us collectively and then it's gonna show up in me individually because when I accept Christ, I go from me to a we, right? I'm grafted into the body, into the family, but I'm still a me. So the church can gather and then the church will disperse and wherever you go, the Bible says that you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul says this again, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And so the writer here on God's behalf is saying, wait a minute, if this is true, if God's within me and he walks with me and lives with me and walks with me, then how can I be just okay with sin in my life? That if there's something in my life that is distorting or distracting from the heart of the Father, that that may be a table that I have to flip in my own life. And that's why for the Christ follower, that's why God cares about your sin. The reason God cares about your sexual purity is not because he's a stuffy, boring God, but because he knows 
that when you sin sexually, you harm other people and it distracts their pathway to him. That's why God cares about your sobriety. That's why God cares about your humility. That's why God cares about your generosity. It's not because he's just trying to control your life and make you do whatever he wants you to do. It's because he knows that when you live differently, when those things don't define and direct you, when they're not idols in your life, you wind up clearing tables and making people's pathway straighter to God. And so he would speak into your life. And he'd be like, be generous, be humble, be sober-minded. Don't be Captain F-bomb. Like, get rid of all bitterness and anger and brawling and slander and malice. Instead, live in compassion and forgiveness and love with one another. Why? Because it makes people's path to the Father easy. Because I pulled out the tables that were in my life. And Jesus... When you see him interacting, that's what he's doing. He's looking at the sinner and he's saying, I, I love you. You are not the object of, of my hate or my scorn or my rejection. You are the object of my compassion and love and my invitation. And you guys, you guys know that. And you're, you're, you're making a profit off of it and you're perverting it, and you're distorting it, and none of it was intended for that. How dare you turn my father's house into that? And his reaction was his zeal and his passion for people who were looking for him, for people who were lost. Jesus's message is important. I want you to catch this. This is hyper important. Are you listen, catch this. Jesus never said that sin doesn't matter to his father. You will never find that. In fact, Jesus's message actually amplifies sin. But his motive for amplifying it is not what most people think. For, for the sinner, God doesn't amplify your sin to condemn you with your sin. He doesn't need any more evidence. He's not condemning your sin. He's warning you. He's looking at you saying, guys, listen, you understand that? Like these things that are going on in your life, they're, they're going to cost you your soul. And you don't know that, but I know that, and I love you. So I'm gonna, like, you didn't know that sexual immorality offended God, but sorry, I'm letting you know. You didn't, you didn't know that greed offended God. You, you didn't even know that there was a God and that he could be hurt, but I'm, I'm just letting you know that because it's going to lead to your spiritual death and I'm here to rescue you. I'm not here to rub that in. I'm here to interrupt that path. So God, Jesus will often amplify sin. And he does the same thing to the, to the Christ follower. He would look and say, I'm not... I'm not here to rub that in. There's no condemnation. You don't have a token sin or the taboo sin and that one sends you back to hell. I'm not trying to, I'm not condemning you. I'm letting you know that if you clear these things out of your life, the path to my father's heart is clearer. And that's what I'm passionate about. Jesus wakes up every morning, so to say, and he's thinking about his father and how to do his father's will and how to please his father. And the second thing he's thinking about are sinners, and how to love them and search for them and draw them to the repentance that they need. It's his passion. 
So he amplifies sin because it affects that passion. I'm passionate that you know this so that you know how to escape it. I'm passionate that you guys deal with this so you know how to not interrupt it. Jesus doesn't ever say that your sin doesn't matter to God, but his solution, his solution is unique. His solution is not to dilute sin. Ah, that one doesn't matter, just... His solution is not to dilute sin. His solution is to flip tables, to clear the path so that your path to forgiveness is as clear and accessible as possible. And that passion is seen when he walks into these temple courts. He's like, how, how could you possibly do this to people? How could you do this to people? You are the ones who know. And then he would look at the sinner and he would say that that temple where my father's presence is, that's for you. So that you can know the heart of a good and faithful God. I don't think it's, I don't think it's coincidental at all that Jesus makes a whip. Because he, this is how we know he didn't lose his temper. He wasn't like, you know what, here's a whip. <laughs> he, he made one, like I, he's thinking about it. And I don't think it's coincidental at all that he chose to make a whip. Because the passion that went into that and caused him to flip those tables is the same passion that drove him to the cross and caused him to endure it. And it's fascinating what the Bible says about that. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that, was brought, that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we were healed. Jesus was beaten. And he was beaten with a whip. And the passion that drove him to make one and flip tables is the same passion that drove him to endure one and to go through the cross. It's all the same thing. It's all the same thing. And he would look at his followers and say, like, follow me. What does that mean? That means flip some tables in your life. Follow me, church. What does that mean? That means we flip some tables. Because the point was never the religion. The point was never the temple. The point was the presence within it. A good, loving, faithful God that came to meet with his people. And that presence, that place became a people. Now, I think if you're downloading this, it hits you a couple ways, right? So. I think if you thought like a couple chairs you could sit in, I think one chair that you might sit in is the chair of the sinner whose path to God has been blocked. You guys, let me tell you something. Many of us, that has happened with a good heart and, and really true intentions. Many of us have searched for God and we were lied to. 
we were told that God will not accept us. We were told that our sin was taboo. We were told that we had to stop sinning before we could receive grace. We were told that unless I got my act together, the promise of salvation from God the Father was not available to me. And that is a lie. It's a lie. And that's why you look at the temple of God and you look and say, I'm not accepted there. I'm not welcome there. That scares me. That controls me. And your instinct isn't the instinct of the people who saw it in the first place, who looked and said, that represents a good God who is faithful and loving. And it's a lie. That is not who God is. That is not what he's like. And that's what Jesus was mad about. And his whole message and his whole life is him just burning through tables to make a way. And the people who distorted it and blocked it were wrong. And maybe they started off with good intentions and maybe they were confused or maybe they believed the same lie that you did, but that's not the way it works. Because salvation is free and it's accessible and the whole point is you can't get your sin under control and it doesn't matter what the sin is. So if your road has been blocked, I want you to know that God is good and he is loving and he is faithful and he's pointing your sin out to you not to rub your nose in it but to help you see your need for him. The other chair would be for those of us who are blockers. And to be a recipient of the salvation and the grace of God and to distort that, to be the one who won't forgive, to be the one who is comfortable in my sin to be the one who ignores the parts of God that I don't care about. I know my sexual purity sets up tables, I don't care. I know my addiction sets up tables, I don't care. I know my materialism sets up tables, I don't care. And Jesus would look at you and me, his temple, where the presence of God resides. It's not a place, it's a people. And he would say the mercy and grace that you received is the mercy and grace that you live in. You need to flip some tables. You need to flip some tables. Because your heart for the sinner needs to reflect my heart for you. And when the shallow things, work, politics, fill in your blank, when those become barriers to you ushering people to me, Jesus will always step into that place and he'll create attention in your life. The band's gonna come out and they have to move the
platform around a little bit. So would you pray with me as they settle in? Jesus, there's something beyond description about you and your grace and mercy. It's literally more than we can fathom. Our love always has conditions. We can't help it. (laughs) But you showed us that your love doesn't. And so God, to wake up every morning and think about you, to love you with our heart, our soul, our mind, our strength. And then God, for that passion to turn toward the sinner, to love our neighbor as ourself. God, I pray for the one who has been blocked. And Jesus, if you could, like you did in my life, if you could press through all of that and let them see your heart, you're a good, loving, faithful God who absolutely knows that we struggle with sin and came to rescue us and forgive us and cleanse us of it. And God, for those of us who are your temple, now would you challenge us? Would you let us see the tables we need to flip? And would you make us people who make that path clear and straight to your heart? Thank you, God, that you chase us, you love us, and you never let us go.